Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and on this week's episode, reporter Michelle Rendells sits down with Elena Vanko of the Vera Institute of Justice, a nonprofit that works to improve justice systems, to talk about the recent report the group issued on the use of solitary confinement in Nevada prisons. Later, I call KUNR reporter Paul Boger, who is out in Rachel, Nevada. Paul tells me a bit about what he's seeing as what started as a joke on Facebook about storming Area 51 turned into an event called Alien Stock that is attracting quite a few people who seem to be taking it a bit more seriously. And to wrap up the podcast, I introduce our new intern, Mark Hernandez, and he tells me a bit about what he thinks about the Oxford comma. But first, a few headlines Mark and I read for broadcast by our partners over at KUNR Reno Public Radio. Originally reported by Jackie Valley, more than half of Nevada schools are meeting or exceeding performance standards, according to data released late Sunday by the Nevada Department of Education. Education officials heralded the 2019 Nevada School Performance Framework result as more evidence that the state's frequently criticized public school system is making gains despite ongoing challenges. According to the results, about 53% of schools statewide achieve three, four, or five-star ratings that indicate they're adequate, commendable, or superior in terms of student academic performance. Last year, 49% of schools achieved three or more stars. The Washoe County School District saw gains in the number of schools receiving two, three, or four stars, but it also saw a decline in five-star schools going from 22 in 2018 to 20 this year. From reporter Riley Snyder, a recent decision by the Nevada Supreme Court allowing misdemeanor domestic violence cases to proceed to jury trials has created shockwaves through the state's criminal justice system and prompted concerns from victim advocates. The court's unanimous decision, published last week, would allow for defendants charged with misdemeanor domestic violence to request a jury trial following recent changes to state law that strips gun possession and ownership rights from persons convicted of those crimes. Although the court's decision focused almost entirely on firearm-related changes to the law, opening the door to jury trials in misdemeanor cases is likely to add substantial pressure to the criminal justice and court systems throughout the state. Although defendants are typically guaranteed the right to a jury trial, some jurisdictions, including Nevada, have not offered those rights for petty offenses. Attorney General Aaron Ford called the decision devastating and warned that it could have a chilling effect on domestic violence victims coming forward. Originally reported by Mark Hernandez and now read by him as well. The volume of solar energy projects in the works in the U.S. has reached historic high levels, a trend that is driven in part by high activity in Nevada. A market report released by Wood McKenzie and the Solar Energy Industries Association shows that the number of utility solar projects announced in the first half of 2019 grew by 11.2 gigawatts in the U.S. That brings the total amount of expected solar energy to 37.9 gigawatts. In Nevada alone, the solar market has grown by nearly 30% since this time last year, and as a state, ranks fourth in the country for installed solar capacity. With 6,700 solar jobs at the end of 2018, Nevada had the 10th highest number of employees working in the solar energy sector, and with the production of solar energy set to double in the next five years, that number is expected to grow. Today with Elena Vanko from the Vera Institute for Justice. Elena, if you could explain just briefly for us what the work that the Vera Institute does around sentencing and corrections is. Sure. So Vera is a nonprofit, uh, nonpartisan organization that works to build and improve justice systems in order to ensure fairness, promote safety, and strengthen communities. And the way we do this generally is by working in partnership with governments, whether that be state governments, local governments, 
working in partnership to help them reform and, and develop effective reforms. And the Center on Sentencing Corrections in particular looks at generally the adult criminal justice system, looking at both sentencing policies as well as what happens in correctional facilities, so jails or prisons. You guys just put out a new report of about 100 pages about segregation and solitary confinement practices in Nevada. That's when inmates are separated from the rest of the population. Elena, can you give us a brief overview of what you discovered from your trips to five different Nevada prisons to kind of study how the state is is practicing segregation? Sure. So yeah, segregation or restrictive housing is often what folks in corrections call it, but it's also generally known as solitary confinement. Um, whatever the term, it generally involves someone who is separated from the general population of a prison or a jail. So they're in a separate unit and confined to their cell generally for 22 to 24 hours per day. And oftentimes that one or maybe two hours per day that they're out is spent in a small recreation yard somewhere. So it's very, it can be very isolating. Generally, it also doesn't provide for programming or education or jobs or any of the other things that can happen in the general population of a prison. Sometimes there's uh, folks who actually have a cellmate. Oftentimes it's a single person in a cell. And again, it's just a very isolating environment. Um, Not a lot of interaction with other people. Not a lot of movement, obviously, in a cell. One of the things that you guys noted was that when inmates do get recreation time and they're in segregation, they're spending that time in a small enclosure. They're not out on the yard, in the baseball field, with the other inmates. Can you explain a little bit about what you saw? Correct. Generally, a segregation unit will have its own yard. It's not the large prison yard with a basketball court and and baseball diamonds. It's generally very small, often uh, caged in with a chain link fence, essentially, sometimes even over the top. Other prisons, it it could actually be almost more of a courtyard with cement walls all the way around and just an open top. So a person can see the sky, but that's about it um, and gets a little fresh air. And often it's not that much bigger than the cells, maybe two or three times bigger. Um, So it's not a a huge difference in a sense. And that's generally the only out-of-cell time that person has. How are these inmates getting their meals? Are they allowed to be in a cafeteria with other inmates, or is this food delivered to their individual cell? Nope, the meals are delivered to them, um, as is pretty much everything has to be when they're you know, in their cells. Many segregation cells will have a solid door, but will have a slot with a door, a little flap that opens down, and they can pass the meal trays through there. So then they eat in their cell, um, again, as they spend most of the day in their cell. You guys had focus groups for inmates who have been in segregation and for correctional officers who work for these inmates. What were some of the things that they told you? Well, first, just to be clear, we had separate focus groups. So, one, you know, some with staff and some just with incarcerated people. But, yeah, so we heard from some incarcerated people who had been in very restrictive conditions, some in the segregation units and some in other units that weren't necessarily considered segregation or solitary. But when we talked to them, we heard about the conditions and how little out of cell time they had. And it actually, you know, to us, that essentially sounded like solitary. So we included that in our um, in our report as solitary. Um, because what really seems to be important is the lived conditions, whether a person is able to get out of their cell, what that out of cell time looks like. You know, we heard from a lot of people that it was just very isolating, not a lot to do, you know, very hard on the psyche in a lot of ways. There's a lot of research showing um, that mental illness can develop when someone spends a lot of time in segregation. Just no interactions, the few interactions that there, there may be is just with a corrections officer who's bringing your tray. 
um, no programming, no education. Some folks, you know, had been in a class or a job or a vocational program, and then when they went to segregation, that you know, they were no longer able to do that. So just a lot of feeling of isolation, of, of idleness and boredom um, and frustration. Overall, is the Vera Institute advocating a reduction in the use of segregation or perhaps a complete elimination of it? Um, essentially, yes. So we believe that there should be a reduction and ultimately elimination of solitary confinement as we know it today. That is to say, though, that there will always be some people who may need to be separated from the general population of a prisoner jail for safety reasons, for their own safety, for the safety of others in that facility. But what Vera believes is that that separated environment doesn't have to look like solitary confinement. It doesn't have to mean a person's in their cell 23 hours a day, and for the one hour they're out, they're put in restraints, and they only go to a small yard. That that separate environment could be more secure, it could be safer, but should shouldn't be isolating, shouldn't be harmful. Um, it should still provide programming. If the person has mental health needs, they should get a, adequate mental health treatment, things like that. So we work with corrections agencies to to both reduce their number of the people who are in segregation so that fewer people go there in the first place and that those who do get out more quickly, but also looking at what that environment is like and hopefully ultimately transforming it so much that it's no longer truly solitary confinement. In your research, have you discovered any benefits for people being in segregation? Does this deter bad behavior or somehow keep a prison safer? So Vera's research, we haven't done specific research looking specifically at the effects of solitary confinement. We look more at an agency's use of solitary confinement, so how they're using it, who's going in, things like that. But other researchers have over the last several years looked at solitary confinement and looked at whether it affects um, whether it affects people's behavior afterwards, whether it makes the prison safer, whether after they're released from prison, if it makes the community safer, or if it makes them more likely or less likely to reoffend. Um, and generally, the consensus of the research that exists is that solitary isn't really effective for that. Often, the the argument for solitary is for safety, right? Is to keep the prison safer, to keep society safer. But there really isn't evidence to support that. That solitary, you know changes people's behavior or deters misbehavior or things like that. To go over some of the findings in your Nevada-based report, uh, one of the findings was that 12% of the population in Nevada prisons is in segregation. I wanted to know, how does that compare to other states? Are we in any way doing more segregation than the average? So it is a, a bit tricky to compare between states because you do want to make sure you're comparing apples to apples. And, you know, different systems use solitary somewhat differently, call it different things. The conditions there might vary a bit. So it is a bit hard to compare. But 12% um, is on the high end. Vera has worked with 16 different jurisdictions on this project, 13 states and three county jails. And 12% is on the higher end of this, the jurisdictions we've worked for. There is also a, one of the sort of best reports trying to compare between states is a report that came out in 2018 by the Lyman Center at Yale Law School and ASCA, the Association of State Correctional Administrators. They surveyed all 50 states, got responses from most of them, and tried to compare the rates of the use of solitary confinement in all of the states. They found that Nevada's rate was about 5.9%. 
and that is in probably the top third of the states that they got. So it is on the higher end as well nationwide. I want to talk a little bit about the duration of time that people are spending in segregation. It's one of the things your report explored. I know there was an effort from recently departed Nevada Department of Corrections Director James Zarenda to limit the amount of time uh, in segregation that a person can sort of be sentenced to. Uh, Previously, it could be years, but under the new rules, most offenses cannot be punished by more than 60 days in segregation. What were some of your findings in regards to how long people are spending in solitary confinement? Right. Yeah. So one of the um, major reforms that the department has been working on over the last few years is reforming their disciplinary policy. So so one of the reasons that some people go to solitary confinement is if they're found um, to have broken the rules of the facility, they can be sanctioned almost like a sentence to a set period of time in disciplinary segregation. Under the old policies in 2016 in Nevada, that could be up to two years for one offense and even longer because charges could essentially be stacked. So there could be one incident, you could be charged with multiple different offenses and get a year or two of of solitary for each offense. And that could just mean years and years. The reforms that the department implemented narrowed that down to to 60 days. So now for most offenses, the maximum time you can get in in disciplinary segregation is 60 days with with the exception of two various serious offenses, which staff assault or murder, those are longer. So the the time that people are spending in disciplinary segregation, that length of stay does seem to be going down. However, the other types of segregation that people are in, often called administrative segregation, is technically indefinite. It's not a set period of time like it is with disciplinary. So people can stay there for very long times, and that's where it's very important to have regular reviews and have a pathway for them to work their way back out to the general population. Another thing we found in Nevada, though, that was a particular challenge is that the system is very overcrowded. So in the general population, there's not a lot of open bed space. So we were finding, we heard from a lot of staff at all the facilities that someone in segregation might be approved to go back to GP. They're ready to go. The department has determined there's no need to keep them in solitary in those restrictive conditions. But there's not a bed open for them to go back to in GP that's in, in or an appropriate facility. So then they have to stay in, in solitary for days, weeks, even months waiting for a bed to open up. So that's something that also really contributed to much longer lengths of stay than, than our otherwise would have happened. Some of the suggestions in the report for how to deal with uh, inmate behavior aside from using solitary confinement were things like giving people verbal warnings, uh, counseling people, taking away privileges, that sort of thing. It seems to require a high level of people skills to sort of manage these tense situations within prison walls and some people that have special needs, especially as it relates to mental issues. Can you talk a little bit about some of those suggestions? Um, Some systems that have reduced their uh, solitary population have had success with certain trainings, for example, mental health first aid, so training their staff in in being able to identify um, symptoms of mental illness and work with populations with mental illness, or uh, crisis intervention training, again, being able to interact with people, de-escalate situations without resorting to force, um, and really work with the population to de-escalate situations that otherwise might flare up into violence and then end up with folks going to segregation. So yeah, there's a lot of, really that communication is so critical. And that's something we hear from staff all the time, particularly veteran staff will say that, you know, just being able to communicate effectively 
um, is so key. And it's a hard skill to teach, too. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. you can't necessarily teach everyone that in the, in the first week of training academy. It, it takes experience. It takes practice. This report was obviously just a first step. Now the state is going to have to go through the process of implementing some of these recommendations. Do you expect there's going to be some resistance to some of these ideas? I think yes. I mean, like any reform, change is hard. And in corrections in particular, there's a lot of a culture of, you know, we've done this. This is how we've always done it. We've done this for years. Why do we need to change it? And in any system that's that's reformed, we've, we've heard from staff that there is some reluctance. But a lot of times, particularly if staff are engaged in creating the reforms and implementing them, some of the best ideas can actually come from staff on how to effectively implement these reforms. And a lot of times, once staff start to see that, one, the sky's not falling, and two, maybe things are actually getting better, a lot of times then they do buy in and then talk to their their coworkers and tell them about the great thing that's happening on their unit or their facility. So when staff start to see that, you know, a, a, a segregation unit where incarcerated people are being able to engage in programming or get out of their cell more is now calmer. People aren't shouting and banging on the doors all the time. It's making their day less stressful. It's making their job less stressful. You know, people can can realize that, and that starts to change some of the hearts and minds. But it is definitely a major culture change, particularly for corrections, and it it takes work, it takes communication, and it takes patience. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through some of your findings, Elena. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, so I am here with uh, with Paul Boger from KUNR. We've uh, we've been doing a lot of partner stuff with you guys, um, and so you are out in Rachel, Nevada. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. And uh, what what are you doing out there, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> so I am right now essentially just kind of watching and, and and trying to keep my eyes open for the shenanigans that was kind of expected to see uh, due to this storm Area Fifty One event. Just kind of some background. A couple months ago in, in July, this young man named Maddie Roberts, uh, a college student from Bakersfield, California, created a, a Facebook event called Storm Area 51. And essentially it was a joke saying that if everybody shows up on one particular day and they storm the gates of this secret military base, then you know they couldn't possibly stop everybody. And maybe they you know, eventually get to see them aliens. Uh, I think that's a direct quote from the Facebook page. You know, there was a lot of memes that went around. It really in itself became a meme. But over the course of the couple of months, the joke turned into this nebulous possibility of a music festival in the middle of uh, Lincoln County, Nevada, outside outside of Rachel, which is a small town of 53 people. And it has morphed into this complicated, you know, will people show up? Will people not show up? Is the event canceled, not canceled? There's just a lot of questions going around. But right now it seems that it's smooth sailing. So so, so there are people showing up where, where you're at right now? Absolutely. So there's probably about, I'd say, uh, four or 500 people here right now. Again, this is a really small town. And, and some of the confusion came from... Uh, Matty Roberts, that young man from Bakersfield, he essentially worked with the owner of this, the, the really the only business that I know of in Rachel called the Little Alien. It's a restaurant, bar, and little motel 
in town that is alien themed and uh, they had worked together to plan this festival well about two weeks ago on the Facebook page for alien stock Roberts essentially said that the event was canceled he didn't feel that the owners or the proprietors and Rachel were doing enough to uh, make sure the logistics were taken care of, to make sure this event was safe for people. So he canceled the event, fearing that it was going to be like a Firefest 2.0, and instead decided to hold a, a party, essentially, down in Vegas. Well, that led to a lot of confusion about whether the event was canceled. The owner of the little alien, uh, a woman named Connie West, she says it was going on. And apparently she's correct, because what I'm looking at is there are areas marked off for camping. Um, there are individual camp spots. There are porta johns There's cops out here. There's EMTs. There's two stages being built. Um, so they're moving forward, and it looks like they're preparing for several thousand people to show up. So is is she the one putting on this event? Is she the one setting up these stages? Essentially, yeah. I, I think it's, you know, since there was the confusion with Maddie Roberts that some folks have come forward to help volunteer their efforts. Um, you know, this isn't a very expensive event, but, you know, they, they are charging a few dollars to, to camp there for, for the night, about $100 for three nights camping. What's interesting, though, is that you know, this doesn't necessarily feel like a music festival so much as it's kind of like it, it feels more like what you hear the early days of Burning Man were like. People just showing up to the middle of the desert for a quote unquote event or a happening, whatever you want to call it. It's got that vibe right now. Like people are just showing up, waiting to see what happens, waiting to kind of just make friends or be uh, convivial, whatever you want to call it. it. It feels very reminiscent of that. Are, are people thinking that they're actually going to storm the military base? Is that even in question, or is this more of a let's show up and have a big party? I would definitely say it is much more the let's show up and have a big party right now. No one I talk to has even remotely said that they are looking to storm the military base. I mean, the Air Force has come out and said that would be a terrible idea. Uh, there are actually, I went up to the front gates of Area 51, and there were four different... Um, police cars just sitting there waiting for people, I think, to make the mistake if they want to. Uh, there were, there was a cop, two from Lincoln County. There was a state parks vehicle there, and there was actually a Douglas County Sheriff's vehicle there, all just waiting to kind of see, you know, what was going to happen. Did you talk to the uh, to the gentleman at the gate, or...? I did. You know, they, they said that everybody's been so far pretty respectful, keeping their distance, mostly just taking pictures of the gate, of the stop sign. I mean, there's actually a sign that says, please don't, you know, you can't, you know, you can't take a picture of this sign, essentially. You can't take a picture of this area, but people are just snapping photos away. No one's really caring. But down back at, at Rachel, you know, everybody's just, really, they're setting up. You know, mind you, we're recording this on Thursday, so... By, by by tomorrow when this actually comes out, I mean, this could be a lot of people. I mean, as a matter of fact, they don't know how many. I spoke to Connie West, and she actually, she's not sure either how many people are going to show up. It's been insane. You know, um, I had to reach out to other states to get, you know, like the Portageons and... Um, Medicals covered, securities here, everything that everybody said was not going to happen, and I said was going to happen, is happening. 
So people are saying, you know, this is going to be kind of like a music festival now. That's kind of what it's morphed into a little bit. Are, are there any bands playing? Are there any major bands playing there? Or is it is it local bands? Are, are, you know, I don't who, know of any there? major bands. I don't know of any major bands that are playing right now. Um, I think it's mostly local bands, some from California, maybe a couple from Vegas. I'm not sure who, as a matter of fact, because I haven't seen a lineup. I mean, they are building stages. They are say, They said that they're prepared to have folks come in. So we'll see. So just just for like those listeners who don't know, and I, I'm sure everyone does, but you know, Area 51 is kind of this place that a lot of people think that there's, they keep you know government top secret stuff like aliens. Are, are is there anyone out there you know who's got telescopes out or is looking for any sort of sign of extraterrestrial life? I, I'm you know I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are a few true believers. You know, I I did speak to a few folks who, you know, they 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 do believe in extraterrestrial life and that we've been visited. When I asked them, you know, what Area 51 plays into that, I think I think even they agree that it's mostly pop culture. I mean, Area 51 has been around for decades. It started in the 50s as a CIA test site for the U-2 spy plane. They used that base for a number of years before it transferred to the Air Force. But that's where they've done test flights for years. I mean, it's the base isn't secret. Everybody knows the base is there. The locals have known that base is there for, since it was built. It wasn't really until the late 60s that the first rumblings about aliens uh, first came around due to, I think, some of the uh, folks who maybe have been working out there not understanding the concept of the spy planes that they were looking at. But it really wasn't until the 80s with a gentleman named Bob Lazar who came out and, and really you know made a lot of claims about conspiracies and, and alien technology and flying saucers. That's when I think you really started hearing that that alien theme associated with Area 51. I mean, it is still a mysterious space. I think anytime you have something top secret in a location where people know, you know where it's at, they're going to have questions. But is it exactly this ultra-secret dark site that no one knows about? Obviously not. <laughs> and I guess just to wrap it up, how are the towns reacting? I mean, do they have the capacity to handle... Right now you said 400 people, but who knows how many will be there tomorrow, the day this is airing. Do they have capacity right. to take thousands of people? Well, listen, I mean, does Rachel have the capacity? It seems like it. I mean, this is essentially a big camp out. It, it was advertised as, hey, you, it, it kind of that same Burning Man philosophy of being resourceful and being self-reliant. But, I mean, the towns surrounding, whether it's Alamo, just 45 minutes southeast, whether it's Caliente, you know, people are passing through. They're buying gas. They're stopping at the gas station. Uh, they're staying at the hotels. No one really seems to be bothered in those towns. They tend to be tourist uh, designations anywhere for people passing through to uh, either Utah or going up to some of the state parks. No one seems to be bothered at this point. And mind you, I haven't talked to some of the locals of Rachel. If you actually look at the Rachel uh, City homepage or the Rachel, the, the homepage for Rachel, Nevada, uh, it's actually interesting because there's a big disclaimer saying, don't come here. Yeah, I mean, there's in big, bold letters, they say, we expect riots when those visitors that show up and pay good money find out what the, what the reality looks like. I'd say that hasn't happened yet. It's still really early, but, I mean, if it, it also depends on how many people show up, right? If 70,000 people descend on the town, that could be a real issue. If it's just a how, thousand or so... How many people so signed there, up on Facebook? I mean, on Facebook itself, there were more than 2 million 
RSVPs. If 1% show up, that's 20,000 people. At this point, it, it, I would be surprised if that many people showed up. Then we might have a whole different conversation on our hands. Mm-hmm. But right now, it, it seems pretty sedate, like a, like people are just coming out to the desert to have a good time. All right. Well, Paul, I, I appreciate you uh, you chatting with me today and for driving all the way out to Rachel, Nevada. If anything happens, I'm sure we'll we could, we'll hear about it. And if they if there's uh, if they find any alien technology, hopefully you'll be there to uh, to let us know about that as well. <laughs> I will report from the flying saucer. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. No problem. All right, so we are here at kind of the end of the podcast this week, and this is this new segment we're trying out. It's uh, We're kind of moving it around the podcast a little bit, seeing where it fits in. But this week, instead of arguing about the Oxford comma with Jackie and Elizabeth, I'm here with our, our new intern, Mark Hernandez. How's it going, Mark? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And we are in the KUNR studios, who have been so gracious to uh, to lend us their microphones this week. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah. It's nice in here. Yeah, is this your first time in a radio studio? Absolutely. Yeah. First time. So this is your this is your third week uh, yes. as an intern. How are you? How are you feeling about it so far? I'm a big fan. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of work, but first time I've actually been able to do a job that I enjoy this much. So it's not really it's good. It's not a problem at all. You want you want to be a journalist? Yes, this is this is my one passion now. All right, cool. Um, so we're we're trying to make these a little quick. So I'm going to kind of do this like rapid fire. Kind of tell me a little bit about yourself. Get to know some of our employees here at the Indy. Now, you lived in Germany for four years? Yes, four years in Berlin. Berlin. What? Why? <laughs> what, uh, what, and what, how did you end up there and how are you ended up back here? I'm a German citizen, so I'm half American, half German. Okay. And um, I was able to go there for I – I studied a little bit mm-hmm. and I was able to learn German. Not just – I spoke German before at home, but I was able to learn how to read it, how to write it. And I was able to do um, about a year and something of schooling over there nice. at the university. Is your mom or dad German? Mom. All right. And I understand that you also have three dogs? Yes, we have three dogs. Have three three dogs. very big dogs. What kind of dogs? Uh, they're all types of pit bulls. How did you come across these dogs? They're all through my wife. Okay. I never had dogs before her. And uh, once we got together, she came with um, oh, two she... dogs and then the third one showed up as well. So you're just like, one day you came home and she's like, honey, we got a new dog. No, it's when we uh, moved into our new house that we got all of them because we had to take them into our house. And then, you know... Last week, we had the debate about the Oxford comma, and, you know, we were kind of chatting a little bit before before we recorded, and you said you had some opinions on the Oxford comma. How do you, wh- what side of the argument do you let? Do you I on? am pro-Oxford comma. You're pro-Oxford comma. Pro. Now, I was saying that I used to be pro-Oxford comma uh, when I was in college, and then ever since I've worked at the Indy, I have slowly weaned off of it, and I am now more anti-Oxford comma than I am pro-Oxford comma. Can you tell me why you think the Oxford comma is is good? I think it adds clarity to the sentence, especially for sentences. So like we were talking about earlier, uh, the example of the two strippers with JFK and Stalin, Mm -hmm. that sentence does not look right at all without an Oxford comma. Can you tell me the sentence? So we're waiting for the strippers, JFK and Stalin. This makes no sense without an Oxford comma because you're thinking that the strippers are JFK and Stalin. Okay. But in reality, you're waiting for strippers, JFK and Stalin as three separate entities. Yes, correct. I think in the, I, honestly that example won me over a little bit, and it, it, you know maybe pushed me towards the pro Oxford comma again. But I still think that when you when it's not necessary, when you don't have a situation like that, it's it's kind of in the heart of journalism to save space and save room. Um, and I and that's kind of why I've gone away from the Oxford comma. You know, it's just it's just adding extra stuff that doesn't need to be there well, yeah. in in situations 
unlike that one. <laughs> well, if, like we read on a- AP, they said as long as it doesn't, it's not too much. Like if you need that Oxford comma, put it. If not, save yourself the space. All right. I think that's a good place to be. Yeah. Well, hopefully next week we can uh, move on to a different grammatical argument. But uh, we've had two weeks of Oxford comma. But we also got to get to know our new intern, Mark Hernandez, a little bit better. Thanks, Mark, for being on the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Indie Matters. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you can head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to find more episodes. While you're there, please give us a rating and review to help us out. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about the podcast, you can email me at joey at thenvindie.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast, you can email editors at thenvindie.com. If you would like to support our plunge into the caverns of nonprofit journalism, you can click the Support Our Work button on our site. We've launched a new membership program, so please check that out. I'd like to thank Elena Venko and Paul Boger for being on this week, as well as Michelle and Mark. I'd also like to thank KUNR for letting us record part of this episode in their studios this week. Our original theme song is by People With Bodies, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week.